Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. It's coming on midwinter. Temperatures are dipping below freezing, and the tent camp in Seminary Square, set up by people without homes, has been in the news of late. The city has evicted tent residents, but Beacon Incorporated, formerly the Shalom Center, has established a low-barrier emergency shelter in the former site of a large commercial gym facility near Switchyard Park. Beacon's executive director, Forrest Gilmore, appeared on Big Talk this past October. Let's listen again to the conversation to find out how he became one of the city's point people for homeless relief. This is an encore presentation of Big Talk. Poverty is a major problem in our society, locally, globally, nationally. You know, it's just um, uh, just just uh, an epidemic um, that we as a society have uh, failed to solve at this point. Um, you know, we can get into why that's the case, but reality is we live in a society where poverty is real and it's it's regular and common, far more common than it ever should be. <clears throat> so it's just a problem of our society and, and something that we need to deal with. The core of what Shalom does is, you know, it's very different. It's evolved over the years. We started out as just a tiny little room in a church, in First United Methodist Church, just providing a safe place for people without homes to hang out, read the newspaper, you know, use the phone, get some bagels or donuts and that kind of some coffee, some basics like that, just a safe nourishing, nurturing place for people without home to be, because there really wasn't that kind of safe place for folks uh, in that condition to be. Um, and there's a lot of stigma, there's a lot of, a lot of hatred uh, and um, negativity directed at people experiencing homelessness. So we opened with this little seed of like, how can we just be a place that can just be a compassionate oasis for for folks in that condition. And we've grown a lot. We're, we're celebrating 20 years this year. And in those 20 years, we've grown a, an awful lot from an organization that was a one room, you know, kind of service support center to now three, uh, actually four locations with the isolation shelter that we just opened, the COVID isolation shelter, um, housing, uh, lots of support for, uh, for housing, um, 80,000 meals we serve every year. 14,000 nights of shelter that we provide every year through our supports of people. And uh, last year, uh, we helped over 700 people um, either remain in their homes, prevented home, help them prevent homelessness for them, or help them move back into homes out of homelessness. So just a lot of good work. You know, it's something, Forrest, uh, I've met any number of people who surprised me by telling me that they had experienced some period of time without an address. People who actually lived in their cars, people who didn't even have cars, were on the streets. And then next thing you know, they have good jobs, they're getting along in life, they're raising families. So it's not like homelessness is forever. Oh, absolutely. Homelessness, I think, in, in some ways, is one of all of our greatest fears. I think it's something that we all kind of sit with and, and on some deep level are terrified of. And I think that that impacts why, in many cases, there's a lot of stigma directed at people uh, experiencing homelessness. But, um, but yeah, the average stay for you know, a person in our shelter is about 45 days. 
you know, homelessness is not a, in any way, permanent condition for the vast majority of people experiencing homelessness. There is, a, there is a segment of people experiencing homelessness who have severe disabilities, often overlapping uh, disabilities, physical disabilities, chronic illnesses, uh, substance use disorder and mental illnesses, often many of those uh, at the same time who do experience you know, long-term homelessness due to all of those disabilities. And they're very visible. People see those folks a lot uh, because they're uh, generally sleeping outside. They're generally outside. Um, but they represent maybe 15% of people experiencing homelessness on any given, you know, day. Hmm. You know, a, a couple of years ago, I had on my show a, a woman named Peggy who was a client mm -hmm. of the Shalom Center. And she really opened my eyes to what goes on. You know, she talked about sleeping outdoors. She talked about the fear that she felt. You never know what was going to happen next. She also talked about that she had to stash whatever meager belongings she had under this tree or behind that wall. In other words, her home was wherever she could find a niche. Yeah, the, the, the uh, previous director, executive director of Shalom, uh, Joel uh, Rikas, who came before me, used to say something that inspired me a lot, which is, you know, when you're homeless, the world is your living room. And I, I think that can apply to all kinds of things. The world is your living room. It's your bedroom. It's your bathroom. It's your, you know, storage uh, pantry closet. It's everything. And um, and so a lot of the things that happen, uh, you know, to the rest of us inside our homes are things that people have to figure out how to deal with while they're outside. And we feel safe in our homes. You know, we can kick our shoes off and say, oh, everything's good. Nothing's going to happen to me here. But People who are homeless perhaps never feel safe. It is absolutely a terrifying experience, and and um, you know something that uh, I think I think some people <laughs> misappropriately uh, label it as something that's easy, and it is an incredibly difficult, uh, traumatic, exhausting uh, experience, and uh, and it gets harder the longer it lasts. There are actually some studies that show that as often as mental illness causes homelessness, homelessness causes mental illness. That mental illness is ah. actually a factor in, in causing mental illness for people. I wonder, speaking of psychology and so forth, I'm going to ask you to be an armchair psychologist. Why <laughs> do you suppose that people who have homes look down their noses often at people who don't have addresses? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And I will say that even people uh, without homes look down upon other people without homes. So, so no, having a no home is not necessarily the factor that creates that kind of stigma. It's something that's society-wide and even affects people who are homeless. I think there's this belief, which I think is a fallacy, that somehow people become homeless because uh, somehow they have done um, something wrong. It's right. either they've done something morally wrong or they're not a good worker or, you know, all these things, these kind of factors that, that people prescribe for that. But my, my actual belief, again, goes back to kind of the terror of experiencing homelessness as well as the, you know, the actor, the challenge of when we see someone who's experiencing homelessness in our day-to-day -day lives, I think it it can, it, I think it, it hits us right in the heart 
And I think to witness that is incredibly painful. And so some of us deal with that pain by developing defense mechanisms by saying, oh, it's that person's fault. You know, they caused it, they did it, they, they're responsible. So I don't have to feel bad for, for what's going on. I don't have to feel, you know, this pain that I'm feeling in my, in my heart when I see this situation. If I can blame it on them instead of recognize there's something wrong here, then I can pretend like it's not happening and not have to feel the hurt of seeing that situation. Because it does take it out of you to have to, you know, give of your heart to somebody who's in a really lousy situation. Yeah, absolutely. There's something called, we talk about in, in the social service work, something called secondary trauma, uh-huh. which is the idea that um, social service providers, caseworkers, um, you know, and such people working with folks, that, that, that we can experience trauma secondarily by being... Um, with and supporting people who are directly in primary trauma. So, you know, I think that happens to to EMTs. I think that happens to, um, you know, police officers, fire fire department folks, you know, fire and, and of course, to social workers and, and uh, that direct, that direct experience of, of other people's pain can be traumatic as well. And, and I think that happens uh, in a small level to everyone who witnesses some kind of horrible thing happening to someone else. And uh, we have a lot of different interesting ways that people have learned to adapt to, to that experience. I find it fascinating. I've spoken with a number of social workers who have talked about what you have referred to there. And I said, well, don't they have a class for that in your training for social work? And to my shock, they say as one, no, there is no class for how to deal with your own psychological trauma? Yes, it's not an easy thing. And I don't want to overly focus uh, the energy on the the people helping uh, people in need, but it's certainly part of the work and lasting and being able to, um, uh, to continue to be of service and care to people is, is being able to maintain your own, you know, sense of self and your own, your own self care. And, um, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now and, I've been very conscious that I need to remain emotionally healthy in this job for me to be able to last. And it's been important to me to last that I think, I think organizations generally do better when you have leadership that sticks around and you, you build trust, you build relationships, you build on, you know, on accomplishments that have happened, you know, keep building on that. And so um, taking care of ourselves is so important in order to make that possible to really kind of last and be someone that people can come to rely on and count on and, uh, you know, value. Forrest, you're an ordained Unitarian minister. And as you uh, alluded to, uh, yes, you did come to town about 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe even a little more. I do know that in January Mm -hmm. of 2010, you became uh, the Shalom Community Center Assistant Director. Uh, about a year later, a little more than a year later, you became the executive director. You had an interesting path, I believe, getting here. You've lived in a couple of a uh, couple of fabulous places. You were you had congregations in Monterey, California, INVU, <laughs> <laughs> and Princeton, New Jersey. You were on both coasts, and now you're in the middle of America, the the place we call the crossroads of America. How did you wind up here? 
Yeah, this is my first uh, stint in the mid Midwest, but it's also the place that I've lived the longest of anywhere in my uh, in my life, with the exception of my childhood home. And uh, yeah, I came here for family. I was uh, married, and this is the hometown of my uh, my wife at the time. We're we're not together anymore, but uh, this is how we ended up in town, trying to work on our marriage, hoping that would that would help us. And and the marriage didn't survive, but uh, but the work uh, came about, and I've been uh, in love with this work ever since, and have uh, been here now, yeah, going on 10 years. I've been in the city for 11, and with Shalom, about 10 and a half, actually. Say, I wonder, how many people who have been clients of the Shalom Center now work for the Shalom Center? Oh, yeah, good question. We We actively try to... Um, employ folks uh, who who have had those experiences. Off the top of my head, I think um, one, two, three, four at least I can think of right now that uh, that currently work here that were were um, you know clients at one point. These are people making paychecks, uh, presumably either in homes now or on the way to having homes, and it's a triumph. Yeah, I think that's something we love to do, and it's really important to us to hire, uh, you know, within uh, the folks that we work with, and and it and it often works uh, very well for us, and and um, and and for them, obviously, you know, just trying to get a job and a decent paying job. One of the things I'm really proud of at Shalom is every single employee at Shalom is paid at least uh, the city uh, designated living wage. So no one is below this year. It's $13.21 an hour. Every single employee across, you know, the entire organization is, is paid at least that. So, um, and that's something we instituted a few years ago and, and uh, have, have stuck to. Yeah, again, something I'm really proud of as an organization. You know, I, I spoke with a person who had been a client and then actually worked for the Shalom Center. And this person had an interesting, in my view, slant on what goes on. <clears throat> this person talked about the fact that a lot of people at the Shalom Center, quote unquote, need to get their acts together. They need to get off drugs. They need to get a job. And this person was sort of... Uh, Gee, I, I, it was surprising to me how this person was talking. And I wonder, how would you respond to someone saying something like that? In short, I mean, that's not wrong um, <laughs> in terms of, <laughs> you know, people do struggle and they do have issues and they do have obstacles and they come to the center with those issues. We're not, you know, um, uh, a, a dilettante ball, for a lack of better words. We're an emergency room. Yeah. And so people come here with all kinds of uh, horrible uh, challenges and struggles and experiences. So when people are, uh, you know, in a closer situation to getting stable and back on their feet than others. So I wouldn't say it as harshly as as uh, was said there, but but I I absolutely agree that people come with many obstacles, and part of the solution is helping those over helping people overcome those obstacles. There is a mysterious thing that happens that a lot of us in our society don't really understand well. We mistake slow movingness for laziness. We're very work oriented culture, and so we assume that. Everyone has to work really hard to um, to be, uh, you know, the best person they can be. But one of the things that we don't really uh, recognize very easily is the impact of trauma 
And um, one of the things that happens is, is trauma hits um, our folks uh, so severely that it literally locks them up. Uh, and and um, so part of the problem in terms of moving forward is dealing with that. It's not because some people are trying to live on easy street, quote unquote, it's that they have experienced enormous trauma and overcoming that trauma is a big challenge, huge challenge. Some of the most horrifying things when you really get into the stories of folks, when we talk about particularly this, the, the group of folks that the percentage of folks that are homeless long-term, you start to talk about their backgrounds pretty much without fail. There is massive abuse, often sexual abuse, um, incest, <clears throat> rape, uh, all kinds of horrible things, often in childhood. They're absolutely traumatized by, by that history of, in many cases, repeated abuse. And, and that's, that's something to just be aware of. That's, that's going on. You know, the only time I actually see an exception to that is occasionally we'll see someone with a very severe mental illness that actually grew up in a fairly stable childhood, but had a severe mental illness that came upon them in their you know, early adulthood or something like that. But the, the level of trauma that, that's uh, present in people that are homeless long time is just e enormous and something that many of us cannot even uh, comprehend having survived. Speaking of challenges, uh, if uh, a person is uh, transgender yeah. and without an address, there's a couple of huge challenges right there. Now, recently, the Trump administration uh, has proposed uh, ceasing protections for organizations that receive HUD funding. That's Housing and Urban Development. Your Shalom Center is one of those places that gets HUD funding. Yeah, and absolutely. Do you serve transgender people even today? Yeah, absolutely. We, we, uh, whether we received HUD funding or not, we would be um, proactively supporting uh, people from the LGBTQIA community. It's, it's really important to our values in terms of our core, our core value being dignity, that we honor the dignity of every single person. So that's really at the, at the core of who we are. And so, so absolutely, you know, homelessness disproportionately affects people who are um, LGBTQ, um, transgender, uh, gay, gay, lesbian, bisexual, et cetera, that, 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 that they're, you know, I don't even have the numbers off the top of my head, but the, but the amount of um, prejudice uh, that, that occurs for people from those groups, from their families uh, and uh, from society in general, makes them disproportionately likely to be homeless. So we have got to be a, a support and a haven for people, you know, with different um, gender identities, with different uh, sexual orientations in order to, uh, you know, really take care of everybody who's experiencing homelessness. Would you think that perhaps a transgender person might experience uh, a hard time even from other clients? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's one of the things that we, uh, try to do and try to be um, a protective of because because people can experience that kind of transphobia anywhere. One of the biggest uh, betrayals I think that can, that people can experience um, is you know coming to a service provider. I am in help. I need help. I am homeless. I am I am desperate and being turned away uh, because of their gender identity. And that that's something we are actively like 
we are we are not going to be a part of that. We're going to actively support people through all gender identities and and welcome and embrace and provide services equally uh, to people of all gender identities. Another great challenge, of course, it being 2020, is the COVID-19 crisis. How is that crisis affecting the Shalom Center? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's affecting us in a lot of different ways. Uh, the, biggest, the biggest way that it's impacted us is, is, is in the protective measures we've needed to create in order to keep our guests safe. Many people experiencing homelessness, especially when they come to service providers, they're living in or occupying spaces that are tightly packed, that have a lot of people in them. There's a lot of potential for exposure. There's a lot of illness. So it's like almost a recipe for spreading uh, the illness to uh, from one person to another person to another person. So we've had to do our best to really kind of initiate practices so that wouldn't happen. Like everyone who comes in, uh, before they enter um, uh, our both our overnight shelter and our day center, they go through a process of being have a symptoms check. You know, just kind of checking if they've got a new cough or if they're having any trouble breathing or if they're having a fever. They're all they all get temperature checks. Every single person who comes into our door uh, gets a temperature check every day, and then they're uh, required to wear masks inside our facilities, and they're also required to wash their hands every time they come and go every time they come into the facility. So even if they leave and come back, they have to wash their hands again. So <clears throat> that's been a pretty effective um, mechanism for, for helping us uh, do that at the day center. Very similarly at the, the overnight center, we, we, um, the overnight shelter, we've moved to a new location and that move has allowed us to physically distance in the space. So, so we moved to a larger space and um, allowed people to have beds that are further apart. Every bed is, you know, uh, um, at least 10, 10 feet apart from each other. So people can um, use those spaces without, uh, at least with reduced risk of getting ill. And that's an interesting thing too, the mask mandate. You know, for, for most of us, you know, we go home, we take off the mask. You know, you and right. I, we're having this conversation right now, we're free of a mask. Yep. But when you're homeless, you, you basically have to wear the mask all the time. You're you always know, around people. You're always around people. And so you're always, you know, even when you're outside, you're always around people. Um, some people have been really worried about folks, for example, at Seminary Park, not wearing masks. And I uh, just encourage people to recognize that uh, and, and offer some sympathy for folks that really have had, are being asked to ma wear masks all the time. And if you look at the, the park, you know, people are generally potted up. So they're with their close friends, you know, and they're isolated and, and uh, in that way, um, which is really important. Well, it's also, I think, really important to know and tell, to let everybody know that in, throughout this whole experience, uh, starting way back in, you know, when it started to hit our community in, in March, we have not, we have had one positive test result, one person actively experiencing homelessness who tested positive for COVID in all of that time. So, so the measures that we're applying are really working. You know, we have referred to this already, how difficult it is for the average person to find room in their heart for a person who doesn't have an address. 
it's got to be a heck of a challenge to dedicate his whole life to working with them, as do you. How did you do that and why? Um, the how is day by day. <laughs> and uh, just the keep, you know, the keep on keeping at it and uh, trying to keep myself healthy and happy every day um, by taking care of myself and, and doing my best to, to do that. The why is probably part of what allows that day by day to happen. And, I, and I'll, I'll be honest, I've, I'm uh, a middle class, straight, white guy. Um, who who has uh, experienced very little trauma in my life, and so so the motivation for me comes from somewhere else, and I don't fully know what it is, but I know that there's been a drive since uh, for a long time since I was young that um, particularly for directed at people in poverty and particularly directed at people experiencing homelessness. There's something about the vulnerability of that experience and that circumstance that motivates me. Uh, maybe it's that in some ways I recognize myself as being a vulnerable person too, that we're all vulnerable on some level. And so I, I connect my own vulnerability with the vulnerability of homelessness. You know what surprises me, Forrest? You being an ordained minister in the Unitarian faith, you did not mention religious faith as a driving factor behind your taking this job. Why? That's a really fascinating question. I mean, I probably should <laughs> should have done that, but but the truth of the matter is, for me, I don't I don't, um, uh, and this connects with my religious background as a Unitarian Universalist. Is is that for me, it's not um, faith per se that uh, that drives me, or at least not faith in some kind of higher being or higher higher energy that that kind of drives me. I, I'm deeply motivated by the great wisdom keepers of, of, of history and time, those who've really kind of stepped out of themselves into generosity and compassion. You know, Jesus is an incredible inspiration uh, to me in terms of the life that he lived and what he advocated for. I've got Dorothy Day behind me, who's, you mm. know, a picture of her um, behind me on my wall. Uh, she's just somebody who um, lived out her life as part of the Catholic worker movement that she founded um, in dedication to people in poverty. And so that's, that's if, if you want to call that faith, but that's, that's what really inspires me, those human beings throughout history that have said, I want to live my life in a way that makes a difference for others, that stands for others, that, uh, that shows each of us that love and generosity and kindness and compassion are the best ways for us to live. Forrest, if someone wanted more information on the Shalom Community Center, and if someone wanted, let's say, to open up the wallet, sure. how might they do that? Yeah, sure. The easiest way is just to go to our website, uh, which is shalomcommunitycenter.org. That's also where you can learn about um, how to volunteer, how to donate, and how to do donate items, too, because in addition to, to funds, we also give out items to support people, socks and backpacks and sleeping bags. And that's the best uh, first location. Forrest Gilmore, Executive Director of Shalom Community Center. Once again, the former Shalom Center is now known as Beacon Incorporated. This has been an encore presentation of Big Talk. Thanks so much for being on Big Talk. Absolutely. Great to be with you.